You're listening to the weekly teaching podcast of Hope City Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. We hope that what you hear today inspires you to laugh, question, think, and grow. If you'd like to connect with us even further, hit us up online at hopecitypdx.com or shoot us a direct message on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Well, welcome to Hope City. Um, it's so fun to see uh, ladies getting together, getting to know each other and getting to be known by each other. Um, this is a demonstration of a huge value we have here. Uh, circles are better than rows. That Sunday morning in rows is a great place to start. It's a horrible place to stay. Uh, that might be a little bit strong language, but um, we just believe that, man, some of the best uh, things in life happen when we're in community. Some of the biggest transformations that we have in our walk with Jesus happens when we gather together on purpose with a purpose to pursue God and to love one another. And so um, this is just one of those opportunities that uh, people at Hope City have gotten. This one was for ladies to get to know one another, to be known by one another, to build that relationship more deep than just a hello and a handshake on a Sunday, but to actually share life together. And so um, that's a huge part of who we are. Uh, If you're new here, know that about us. Uh, That is that's going to be, that's just a value that we have. And also, if you're new here, it's your first time at Hope City, thanks for being here. Welcome. Thanks for, for walking in the doors. Uh, thanks for trusting us enough to walk in the doors for the very first time, to introduce yourself to people who might already be introduced to one another. It can be a little bit scary, a little bit overwhelming. Um, and so thank you so much for walking in here and taking that risk this morning. Um, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and I'm excited uh, to, to be here with you guys. Um, and and uh, for me, um, I, I grew up, I've, I've talked with some of you about the fact that I've grown up in Scappoose, it's a small town, um, but I moved there when I was 11. So I say I grew up because the majority of the life that I remember happened in Scappoose, but even before Scappoose, I lived in a much smaller town. It's a town called Malino, and you might go, what country is that in? Um, but it's actually just right down Highway 213. Uh, when I lived there, there were 500 and. 30 people in the entire city, which I think makes it not a city. It makes it something else. Um, but there was, a, there was a post office and a gas station there. So maybe it was a city. I don't know. I don't know what the qualifications are, but um, I lived there. The reason I tell you that is uh, because there's this story of my dad teaching me to ride a motorcycle. Um, and um, we, lived up, we lived up on Paradise Lane. It was a gravel road, goes up the hill. Um, we lived on two and a quarter acres. There, was, there were other people that lived up on top of the hill, but we were separated by woods. And I spent much of my, uh, my childhood in Malino with a machete in the woods with my dog until my dad whistled for me to come home. Um, but growing up up there, uh, it, my dad had dirt bikes and, and he rode dirt bikes all the time. In fact, he'll be, he'll be 73 in June. He still rides a dirt bike. I don't know if that's smart, but he does it. Um, and he's still pretty good at it. I don't think I could keep up with him on a trail. Um, he just, he romps on that thing. And um, I remember when I was about eight years old, he was teaching me how to ride one. And he bought me this little Honda 80 CC. It was about this tall. When he bought it for me at four years old, um, I could not even like try to get on it. And even at eight, I was like, you know how you're, you're teeter-tottering between your tippy toes because you can't quite touch? They didn't have training wheels for motorcycles back then. And even if they did, my dad 
dad would not have told me about them. He was like, get on and go. We'll figure this thing out. Um, and I remember on one particular occasion, we had worked out the clutch and all that kind of on the gravel road. And we ended up taking it to a, a, a logging road. And if you've ever been out on a logging road, uh, the gravel that a logging road is made out of is not, is not your typical gravel, right? A typical gravel road is made of three quarter minus gravel. So it's three quarters of an inch or less. So that's about the biggest rock you'll find is a three quarter inch rock. A gravel road is made with pit rock, which is like five inch or less rock. Like we're talking softball size rock laid down. And, and when all the equipment is going on it is being used, it compacts it down pretty good. It, in fact, when they're driving on it, it compacts really Really hard, it becomes almost like concrete. It's real smooth for the most part. It drives, but as it wears out and deteriorates, and people like my dad ride dirt bikes on it, it starts to get a little bit more entrenched. And the pit rock, the big softball-sized rocks, start to pop out of place. So not only is there now a softball-sized rock, uh, like on top, above the ground, there's also a softball-sized hole where the rock came from. And so it can get a little squirrely on these, on these pit rock roads. And so I'm, I'm, I just remember, I'm riding my 80, I'm like eight years old. The thing, I'm used to riding like my Schwinn mountain bike or whatever I had, my Magna, actually, the Fred Meyer brand, Magna mountain bike, um, which weighs, you know, what, eight pounds, 10 pounds maybe? This bike weighs like 70 pounds, I'm eight. I'm trying to muscle this thing around, trying to figure out the throttle, and I keep hitting these pit rocks that are, that are popped out of the ground, these softball-sized boulders. And every time I hit them, I come to a complete stop, the bike tips over, I'm trying to catch it, I'm trying to pick it back up. And my dad's on his bike, he's doing just fine, right? He's, he's doing circles around me, he's pulling wheelies past me, he's coming back, and he can't tell how frustrated I am but under my helmet, I'm crying. I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm angry. In fact, even most of me wants to give up. And I'm trying to call his name as he's passing me, doing cookies around me and stuff. Um, I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but um, I'm trying to call his name and he's not, he can't hear me over the motorcycles and through the helmet. And finally he stops. He puts his kickstand down and waits for me to catch up. And I remember pulling up to him, tears streaming down my face, stopping, pulling my helmet off and him going, whoa, 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 what's, what's wrong? And I start to explain to him, dad, I can't do this. I keep hitting these rocks and I keep falling over. I hit, I hit these divots and I keep falling over. Like I'm, I'm struggling. I just, I want to give up. I want to be done. This is, this is just too stinking hard. And in my dad's wisdom and his experience, he looks at me. And he goes, well, stop looking at the rocks. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, don't look at where you don't want to go. Don't focus on the obstacle that's in front of you. Look at where you want to go. Where you look is where your bike's going to go. Like focus your eyes on the direction that you want to head. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, just try it. And so I start. I start off again, I get back on the bike, put my helmet on, wipe the tears from my eyes so I can see, and I start taking off and I start looking down the path that I wanna go. Instead of looking at the obstacle I'm trying to avoid, I look at the path, though it's narrow, that I want to take. I look towards the destination that I wanna go. And in that moment, in that, in that season, in that, that, that kind of specific point in time, my dad was teaching me about motorcycles and what he taught me about motorcycles is, that, is this truth, that where you focus is where you will end. Now, where you fix your eyes on is the direction that you will go. 
And it is super true of motorcycles. It's true of bicycles or rollerblades, if you still do that thing. Uh, it's, it's true, I was a skateboarder, sorry. Uh, it's true of driving. It's true of all kinds of different things. But as true as it is of riding bikes, it's true of how we live our life. Where we focus our attention and our energy is where we will end. And through this series, Triple Threat, we're focusing, we're looking at these, these threats or these pitfalls, if you will, if you catch the, the, the Atari reference in our graphics, the pitfalls, the obstacles that, that we face in life, we're asking the question, how do we avoid these obstacles? How do we avoid falling in these pits? How do we avoid these, these traps or these temptations? How do we pass these tests of life in a way that's honoring of God and that isn't selfish or self-centered? We're asking how do we avoid these threats that we will face that the disciple John identifies for us in his letter to the first century church. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, the disciple John says this, for everything in the world, everything in the world, and then he lists the triple threat, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, everything in the world, these three things comes not from the Father, but from the world. These things aren't given to us by God. They're, they're, they come to us from the world. We will face these temptations and these trials no matter what. And these things are empty promises. They promise to fulfill our deepest desires, but they often don't even touch them. And John says so much in the next verse. Verse 17, he says, the world and its desires pass away. The world and its desires are temporary. The world and its desires are fleeting. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these things that come from the world and not the Father, they're empty. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. And so through this series, three weeks, we're in week two, we're examining what it means to avoid these threats or these pitfalls and to do the will of God instead. And the way that we're examining these things is by looking at how the nation of Israel, throughout their story, they were tested in these areas when they went into the wilderness for 40 years. They were tested in these areas, and they often failed this test. But we're also going to look at how Jesus is tempted in these areas when he's led into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, and how he overcomes the temptation by surrendering and submitting to God's will, to the will of God. And we're going to look at one threat each week. So last week, we launched the series. We looked at the lust of the flesh. This week is week two. So we're going to look at the lust of the eyes. Now, the next couple minutes might be a review for any of you who were here last week, but I think it's super important for us to just be on the same page and even be reminded of what this all really means and why this matters so much to us. So let's be reminded this morning, or maybe this is fresh for you today because you didn't make it last week, what this word lust means. The original language is Greek that, it's, that this is written in, and the Greek word for lust is epithumia which the meaning of this word is it denotes or kind of it communicates a strong desire of any kind. Desiring something strongly is what lust is. It's translated as lust. So it's this strong desire. And we all have experienced strong desires, right? In fact, I would argue we all have desires in our life. 
But oftentimes our strongest desire is only a piece of what we deeply desire. Our strongest desire is only part of our deepest desire. If desire, this this is how I would think of it. If desire is one thing, think of it as an iceberg, right? Our strongest desires are most evident. They're most obvious. They're a little bit carnal. They're a little bit, they they might come naturally. They are are not hard to identify. They're immediate. We can see them. We can look at them. We can identify them. We can point to them. But then there's our deepest desire, Our strongest desires aren't always healthy, but our deepest desire, that which lies beneath the surface, that which is less about what we want in the moment and more about what we need in the depths of our being, the deepest desire is God-given and it's good and it's right. And oftentimes, our strongest desire, the thing we desire most in that moment, is very directly attached to a deep, God-given desire that exists within us. And oftentimes we can just look at the surface, look at the immediate desire that is, that is being revealed to us in a moment, and we can pursue that strong desire without ever asking ourselves, what deep desire is that strong one attached to? And in the pursuit of, the, of just par, the partial desire, in pursuit of that, that strongest desire, we may actually we may actually forget or miss the opportunity to fulfill our deepest desire. Think of it this way. This is just the simplest way to think of this illustration, strongest versus deepest. If we think about food or we think about hunger, right? When we get hungry, our body's desiring something. We're empty and our, our stomachs need to be filled. Our, our deepest desire is to get nutrition, to get fuel, to, to, get, to get our bodies filled with the nutrients it needs to have energy, to think clearly, to grow, to be healthy. That's our deepest desire. But our strongest desire, at least mine, is usually, usually involves like coffee and ice cream, like caffeine and sugar. Give me an affogato at any point in the day and I'm super happy. My strongest desire is met, but my body is angry. It's not fulfilling my deepest desire by simply pursuing my strongest desire. And while this is, that's a pretty simple illustration, it's true of our lives. It's true of our souls. It's true of all kinds of different desires. Our strongest, most evident desire points to our deepest one. And so when we sense a strong desire, we've got to ask, what deep desire is that tied to? And how do I go about fulfilling the deep one, not simply the strong one? If we only address what's most obvious, what we crave in the moment, we will never fulfill our deeper, more hidden, more foundational desire that we have within us. And so today we're going to look at the lust of the eyes, the strong desire that our eyes elicit in us, that what we see can influence how we live. It can influence the direction that we go. And if we simply leave it to our eyes alone, we will risk being deceived or tricked into an empty promise that won't fulfill anything. And as I said, um, these strong desires can be, can be uh, stirred up by what we see. And we're going to be looking at how Israel is tested in the wilderness and how Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. We're going to start with Israel. And so we're going to look at how Israel is tested by God to, in, this, in this area. 
And I think when we talk about God testing us, that's not always super comforting. But if we understand the heart, we talked about this last week, the heart behind why God tests us, I think we begin to see his deep care and love for us. God isn't testing us to see if we'll fail him. God tests us to reveal our true devotion and then to grow us, to encourage us, to shape us and to redirect us into what is good for us and what might meet our deepest desire rather than our strongest. God tests us to reveal and to grow and to shape us. And so Israel experiences this test from God. If you remember part of the story of Israel, right? They're in slavery to Egypt for over 400 years. Uh, After that, God sends Moses to to be kind of the spearhead for uh, freeing Israel from slavery in Egypt. They're freed from slavery for the first time in over 400 years. Moses leads them through the Red Sea. That's a huge phenomenon, miraculous moment in Israel's history. They get to the other side. They're wandering in the desert and they find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai. And it's at the base of Mount Sinai where they start to, they set up camp. And Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to talk with God, to hear from God, to speak to God. And he's up there for quite some time. And the nation of Israel, which is over a million people, which is crazy, they're camped at the base of the mountain and they're wondering, where did this Moses guy go? And it's here that their lust of their eyes, their desire to see what they'd want starts to overcome and overtake their decision-making. And we find this in Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse one. The story goes like this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. That's Moses' brother. Moses left Aaron in charge down at the base of the mountain. They gathered around Aaron and they said this, come. Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, oops, Moses didn't do that. God did that through Moses. That's their first kind of forgetful moment. We don't know, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So they're going to Aaron. They're saying, hey, make us an idol we can see. We want, we want to worship we want to worship the God who freed us from slavery, but, but we want to worship him in, with our eyes, with what we can see. We want to worship something that we can see, an idol that they could see with their eyes. They desired something that maybe was familiar to them back in Egypt. This is how Egypt would worship. They would worship figures of gods. And so Israel is saying, let's go back to something familiar. We want to worship the God who freed us, but, but let's make an image of him. And so they're trying to worship something they can see. Look down in verse four. It says that Aaron, he, Aaron took what they had handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Look, they wanted to worship the God who delivered them the God who brought them out of Egypt and freed them from slavery. But instead of worshiping God, they worshiped an image. They worshiped the thing they could see. Instead of worshiping the creator, they created something that was pleasing to their eyes. Their eyes became the director of their intention, the director of their worship, the director of their devotion. 
So instead of worshiping the true God who actually delivered them, they forgot who God was and they worshiped whatever they could see. Their fixation, their gaze, their look was not focused on God the creator, but something that they could create. And there's some ramifications that happen and the story continues and Israel wanders in the desert for 40 years total. And, and they, they after, after 40 years and after all kinds of different tests and tribulations and different things where they've had to decide whether or not they trust God or trust themselves, they find themselves finally after 40 years ready to enter the land that was promised to their forefathers, to their ancestors, the promised land. And before they enter into the promised land, God begins to remind them and to instruct them. God reminds them of where they've been and God instructs them for how to live in the promised land before they get into it. And this instruction, this reminding happens in the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 10, it says this. This is that reminder. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob to give you. Then he describes the land, a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. When you see all of these things with your eyes, when you see almost the fulfillment of this promise, when you see these beautiful things, he says, and then when you are satisfied, when you eat and are satisfied, when your strongest desires are met in that moment, he says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He says, fear the Lord your God, serve him only and take your oaths in his name. In other words, this is a reminder Israel, do not do what you've already done in the past. Do not repeat the past and forget who God is. Do not forget the, the past. Do not forget God. Don't bow down to what you see at the expense of what is unseen. This is, this is God reminding Israel, hey, don't forget the God who actually brought you out of Egypt. Don't forget the God who freed you from slavery, who freed you from that oppression. That's what it meant for them today, for us today, for them then, for us today. Maybe this is a reminder of, man, do not forget in this moment, in this season of your life, do not forget the God who freed you from bondage, who freed you from addiction, who's freed you from shame, who's freed you from fear and, and, and this overwhelming anxiety. Don't forget the God who has been good to you all the way up until this point. Don't allow what you see to take your focus off of the God that you serve. Don't bow down to what you see at the expense of what is unseen. This is a, this is a real struggle, right? I mean, we can easily see the kingdoms of the earth. We can easily see the things of this temporary life. We can touch this table and we can see each other and we can see the things that we interact with. And yet the kingdom of heaven is not as visible. It's not physical in front of us, but we can easily get focused on the temporary things of earth 
and forget the eternal things of God. We can focus on earthly things and forget heavenly things. We can serve idols that bind us even before we recognize they bind us. But we can serve idols that that trap us rather than serving and worshiping the God who frees us. So do not forget the God who freed you, the God who redeemed you. Israel, don't forget. Church, don't forget. Now we fast forward several centuries later and Jesus shows up, right? Jesus' life and his ministry begins. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And shortly after he's baptized and his ministry really starts to take off, uh, Jesus is led into the desert, not to be tested by God for his growth and for his, his, uh, his maturing, but to be tempted by Satan. This is totally different. God tests for our good and for his glory. Satan tempts to steal, kill, and destroy anything that is in our life. The heart behind temptation is destruction, while the heart behind testing is growth and goodness and the, tr- the deepening of our trust in God. God wants to develop our character while Satan wants to destroy our lives. And it's in the desert where Jesus is tempted by the enemy for his destruction and ultimately for our destruction. Uh, and just a reminder, here's, here's kind of how it starts. Luke chapter four is when we have this account of, of Jesus in the desert. And in verse one, this is the setup, right? Jesus, so it says, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, that's where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit, not deceived, but led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for not 40 years, but 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, as you should be, he was hungry. If I don't eat for four hours, I'm hungry. If my kids don't eat for two minutes, they're starving. Like this is just, but this is the state that Jesus is in. He's hungry. And if you're me or if you're human, when you're hungry, you're weak, right? Your your inhibitions, they're, they're let go. You're just like, man, I just need some food, whatever I can get to fill this stomach. That would be wonderful. And it's in this weak state, this hungry state, this susceptible place that Jesus finds himself that Satan enters in and begins to tempt him. And I think it's so important. Again, I said this last week, I think it's important to recognize that Jesus in his humanity is hungry in this moment. He's a hundred percent God. He's also a hundred percent human. Yes. I know that's 200%. He's God. He can do it. I don't know how it works. I'm not good at math anyway, but he's a hundred percent human. He experiences this deep Hunger, and it's in this weak state that Satan begins to tempt him for his destruction and for ours. We went over the first way that Satan tempts him last week. We're going to go to the second way that Satan tempts him this week. It's this onslaught while Jesus is weak. And down in verse five, we see the second temptation. Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, look, 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 look. Look at all the kingdoms. Look at all these places. Take a look and visualize it. See it all. In just a moment, he sees all the kingdoms of the world. And then Satan said to him, verse six, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anybody I want. So I'll give it to you 
If you worship me, it will be yours. If you worship me, I will give you all of this. And in this weak state, Satan tempts Jesus with the power, the authority, the splendor, the riches of all the kingdoms of the world. He tempts him with all of this. And this is, this is before Jesus has any kind of real fame or following. His ministry has just begun. And so he's not as well known as he will be just in a year or so. And so this is a fast track to Jesus being known. Not only is it a fast track that the Satan's offering to Jesus' fame, he's offering a fast track to Jesus being the king of all earthly kings. And if you remember, scripture says that the Messiah, the savior will come to be the king of kings, the Lord of lords, to set up a new government, to set up a a new kingdom that will be above all other kingdoms. So Satan in this moment is tempting Jesus. This isn't insignificant. This is strategic. This a temptation for Jesus to, to get the kingdoms of the world in an instant And Satan plays to the things that it would afford Jesus. Ultimately, Satan tempts Jesus to repeat the mistake that Israel made with the golden calf, to forget God and to worship someone or something else instead. And more than that, Satan is tempting Jesus to gain the kingdoms of the world outside of the cross to gain the kingdoms of the world without any sacrifice. It's a shortcut that would have bypassed the very work that God wanted to accomplish in the world. It was a bypass of the hardship that the cross would be. And I don't know about you, it sounds great to have my kingdom without anything to sacrifice. It sounds great to get to the destination without there being any difficult path toward it. It sounds great to to say, man, Jesus, I know you said take up my cross and follow you, but I love to follow you without my cross. Is there a way that I could just bypass that development? Uh, My character, I know it's not great, but God, whenever you try to develop my character through testing it, it's really uncomfortable. I start crying, I take off my helmet, and I want to give up. That's, 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 that's the depth of this destruction that Satan wants to accomplish in this moment. He's trying to get Jesus to get the kingdom without the cross. But Jesus says this. Jesus answered, it is written. In other words, God's already spoke to this. God's already taught this lesson. God's already demonstrated what we're to do in this circumstance. Israel already messed this up. Let's point back to this. Jesus says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I know, Satan, that you're trying to get my strongest desire to override my deepest desire, but I'm not gonna let you because God has already revealed what my heart most deeply wants, and that's relationship with the creator of the universe. I will not bypass my deepest desire to satisfy my strongest desire. See, Israel allowed their eyes to lead them astray allowed their desire to see something override their desire to commune with God. Jesus, when he's tempted, refuses to take his focus and his attention off his father in heaven. And here's what we know. 
We've already said it. Where we focus is where we end. What we fix our eyes on will determine our direction. And Jesus knew this, not just because he lived it in that moment, but because he taught it all through his ministry. Look at what he says in Matthew chapter six, verse 22 through 23. Jesus, he's actually talking about money, but he takes a break to to talk about our eyes. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Jesus is like, look, the lamp into your body, into your soul is your eyes. It's what you look at. It's what you fixate on. It's what you focus on. And if the world around you is dark and you're focusing on darkness, you will be filled with darkness. How dark will it be? But the contrary is true. If the world around us is dark and we're fixated on the light and we're filled with light, how bright will that light shine in the midst of the darkness? What we look at determines the direction of our life. Where we look impacts our life. Not only does it impact our life, look at what else Jesus says about our eyes and how it affects the state of our heart. Matthew 5, 28 through 29, Jesus, again, in the middle of teaching says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust in her, with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What? Jesus, it's just, it's just an image. It's just a quick glance. It's just a look. It's just, it's just my eyes. No, no, no. Your eyes are tied to your heart. He goes on. He gets intense. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Okay, Jesus, that's really intense. You want us to gouge our eyes out? I don't think he's teaching literally here. In fact, I don't think any of us believe that because we've all got our eyes still. But I don't, I don't think we're, I don't think he's, he's not saying tear your eyes out. What he is saying, what he is demonstrating is that your eyes impact your heart. And if your eyes are polluting your heart, prioritize your heart and get rid of what you're focused on. Because what you're focused on impacts your heart. When we engage our eyes, in other words, we engage our hearts. Or maybe say it this way, what we engage our eyes with, we engage our hearts with. What we fixate on with our eyes, we fixate on with our hearts. This is, this is hard stuff because the next question that pops at least into my head and my heart as we're considering what is this lust of the eyes? Why does it matter? If our eyes engage our hearts, then what are we engaging our hearts with as we engage our eyes? What, what are we looking at that's engaging our hearts more deeply than maybe we realized before this morning? What are we looking at through the lens of our eyes? What are we engaging our hearts with? Here's just a couple things to consider. This is, this is crazy. I think this includes work um, and, and things like that. But the average person in America spends seven hours a day on a screen. Seven hours. I, that's a long time. 
We spend seven hours looking at emails. We spend seven hours scrolling Instagram or Facebook. We spend seven hours uh, studying for a test or studying for work or seven hours putting together that project for work. Seven hours looking at, man, how to install a toilet because our toilet's broken. Like we spend seven hours doing all kinds of different things on screens. We're focusing our time on something. We're looking at things all day long. And what we focus on determines where we'll go. What we look at engages our hearts over time. So what are we engaging our hearts with? How about this stat? 20% of men and 17% of all women struggle with addiction to pornography. This is not just an image, although it may feel like it. It's, it's not just a moment, although that may be all we consider it to be but it is an engagement of our hearts with an image, with an idea, with a thought. This is, this is more than just a moment. This is more than just an image on a screen. It's an engagement of the heart. How much time do we spend scrolling someone else's highlight reel on social media? We look at their life. We look at their vacations. We, we, we look at their house and the things that they're doing and we, we, we fixate on it and we go, man, I wish I just had what they had. It's an engagement of the heart. I wish I, wish I had the, the vacations that they had. I wish I had the life that they had. And pretty soon, pretty quickly, we start to resent the life that we have. And we miss actually the things that God has given us, the way that God has uniquely gifted us to impact the world that he's placed us in the middle of. We start to forget that God actually made me, made me exactly who I am on purpose, with a purpose to make an impact on his kingdom, not on mine because I'm so fixated on someone else's kingdom. And we can start to doubt the good things that God has put inside of us to benefit those that he's placed around us because we're fixated on someone else's life. We can drive down the street and see our neighbor's apparent success because of the way their house looks or the kind of car they drive, the job they have, their kids, their spouse. We can get fixated on their life And we can quickly begin to try and replicate their life within ours, forfeiting the very things that God has created us to accomplish and the very person that God has created us to be. Resentment sets in because what we fixate on, what we fix our eyes on engages more than just our sight. It engages our heart. Maybe we fixate on our bank account. We're just constantly checking, looking at the balance or looking at the lack of balance and wondering how are we going to fill this gap? We look at our investments or we, we look at our, 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 you know, we're looking at the market and wondering when is it going to turn back up? It's flattening out. I'm getting a little bit concerned. I bought this house as an investment, the, the value, whatever it is, we can get so fixated on our bank account and that we forget that God is the one who provided the bank account in the first place, that God's the one that provided everything that we have already, but we're so fixated with our eyes and with our thoughts and with our attention that we forget the God who's been with us since the beginning. We can focus on these golden calves that are filled with empty promises to fulfill something that isn't even our deepest desire in the first place. These golden calves that represent a kingdom without sacrifice, a kingdom without a cross, a kingdom 
absent of a savior. And we can come to these moments, we can think about maybe what we're fixated on and we can become so incredibly discouraged. We can just think, you know what? I'm driving through my neighborhood with my eyes closed. I'm never checking my account balance again and I'm getting rid of all social media. I'm just done with it all. And, and maybe, maybe you should do that, all of it, except for like drive with your eyes open, please. Um, but we can, we can come to the conclusion that we just have to like muscle through it or I would challenge us that in the moments where we find ourselves fixated on something that is temporary and we're forgetting the eternal, what if we took that moment and instead of beating ourselves up about where we're focused, what if we simply took that moment and turned our gaze towards Jesus, transforming that moment into a moment of worship and repentance? The times where our eyes drift towards something that doesn't matter eternally. We fixed our eyes, turned our gaze, turned our focus back towards Jesus. And it became a moment where we worship and remember who he is and what he's done. It becomes a moment where we repent of the direction we were heading. And instead of looking at the obstacle we're trying to avoid, we fixated on the path that Jesus has blazed in front of us. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse one. The writer says this, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. It's marked out for us. Let us run that race, fixing our eyes on Jesus, fixated on him. Why? Because he's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He's the pioneer. He's already made the way. He's blazed the trail. The path is there. Our job is to fix our eyes on him and follow him because he's the pioneer and he's the perfecter. He's the perfecter of my faith. He's the perfecter of your faith, which means we aren't the perfecter. We will not go through this life perfectly, but we can go through this life wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus rather than anything or anybody else because of who he is and what he's already accomplished. The author continues and says, look at this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't choose the crossless kingdom. He chose the kingdom that was built on sacrifice and surrender for the other. He chose a kingdom that included him becoming much lower so that we could be made right and whole and healed so that we could have hope and so we could have endurance to run the race that he set before us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So today, we look to Jesus. Not the world, not our own abilities, not our own stuff, but we fix our eyes on Jesus who overcame the strong desire and trusted that God would fulfill his deepest desire. We looked at Jesus who endured the cross because of his great, deep, inescapable, unfathomable love for you. When we're tempted to choose a crossless kingdom, 
We look to Jesus who chose a kingdom made possible through the cross because of his love. And here's the beautiful thing. If what we look at determines what our heart is enthralled with, then when we fix our eyes on Jesus, our hearts too will be fixed on him. So we're gonna fix our eyes on Jesus. How do we do that? What does that look like? Sometimes we forget the simple things. And so for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, we've been in church for a while, this is gonna seem maybe inconsequential, but I think it's foundational. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus, which means we've got to know who he is. We've got to understand how he's engaged with us. And so if we don't know what he said, what he taught or how he lived, we won't be able to see him or fix our eyes on him. So when's the last time that you read scripture, that you read about who Jesus is? When's the last time you engaged with the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell the story, the account of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection, and all of the power that comes from that. If we're to know Jesus, we've got to engage with him, with his life, and with his ministry. So read scripture Overwhelm your mind with scripture. Otherwise, we'll look at the rocks instead of the path. The other element there is to pray, to talk with God, to hear from God, to speak to God, to bring our hearts to God, to pull up to God on our motorcycle with tears filled, pull our helmet off and go, Jesus, I'm ready to give up. This is so hard. So that he can remind us, hey, it's okay. Just fix your eyes on the path I've already blazed. And the third element is community, is doing life together. Guys, some days I just need a hug. I just need someone to go, hey, it's okay, I'm with you, God's with you, we're for you. Sometimes I need to just talk it out. My wife knows this very well. I just wanna talk this out. I need, I need someone to bounce this off of. I need someone to pray for me and with me. I need to be reminded that I'm not alone in this world. So maybe for you, it's showing up to church, showing up to home community, showing up to these circle up events that we're putting on for people to connect and know one another and be known by someone else. We need to be reminded, Jesus is with you. Fix your eyes on him. Focus on him. Read his story. Pray with him and gather with people who love you and who love Jesus so that we can fix our eyes on Jesus, so we can allow him to have our hearts. Let's pray. God, this morning we come to you. God, we show up before you. And we bring our hearts, God, we bring our lives. We bring the moments where our eyes have wandered, where our attention has wandered, where our worship has been fixated on someone or something else, where we've followed the golden calf rather than Jesus, the lamb. And God, we, we, we wanna turn this moment into a moment of worship and into a moment of repentance. So God, even I today just... God, I I ask you to forgive me for those many moments where I've fixated on something other than you. God, where I've trusted in my own ability or I've trusted in the ability of somebody else 
or I've trusted in some other plan or some other scheme or some other way. God, those moments where I've been tempted to live a crossless life, a life without sacrifice, without surrender. God, would you forgive us? And yet, God, would you lead us and would you guide us? Would you give us the strength we need to persevere, to run the race you've set before us? And Holy Spirit, may you empower us to fix our eyes on Jesus so that our hearts will be captured by his goodness. In Jesus' name.